serve a God who never, never stops working uh, for our good. God is relentless in his providential care for each and every one of us. And so recently, my wife and I, we've started fostering um, twin three-month-olds. And we have found so quickly, it's been less than a week at this point, but we have found so quickly that our, our service to them, our work to supply help in their need is so incredibly limited, and we find ourselves almost moment by moment finding the limitations of what we can ultimately do. So even like last night, we're up till super late trying to meet their needs and provide something good for them. And yet we're getting frustrated. You know, you try to lay the child down and it's like the fifth time and you've you, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you're just about to fall asleep after laying them down, and you begin to hear the cry all over again, and so you're flipping back the covers, and you're getting frustrated, and you're, you're coming to your own sense of limitation in serving the needs of another. Well, here's the beautiful thing about it. God never is limited in his service to us. He's never limited. He never grows weary. In fact, there's a verse, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. It says this, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and he does not grow weary. And he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. This is what God does. God never stops working for our good. He never sleeps. He never gets tired. He never gets weary. He is a God who continuously, constantly works for our good. Even Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we'll see another illustration of how God continuously works for our good. When Jesus goes and he heals the lame man at the pool of Siloam. So here Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Siloam, but come to find out this healing takes place on the Sabbath day. And of course, all the Jews and the religious people get all worked up at the fact that this has happened on a Sabbath day and you're not just supposed to be doing any work on the Sabbath day. And so what does Jesus say? Literally, he says in John chapter five, me and my father never stop working. We never need a Sabbath. We never need a rest. We never need to stop working. We are always at work for the good of our people. God never falls weary. He always keeps on working. He never sleeps. He is always there for his people, always working on behalf of his people. He never stops working for our good. And hasn't that been what we've seen in the story of Naomi and Ruth? They came back, as we've seen, from this land of compromise. They went to the land of compromise, Moab, and they've come back now having lost their husbands, and they have pretty much nothing. They've had no food. They have no family and, and it wasn't just this idea of we don't have anything tangible. They come back from the land of compromise, as, as Naomi will say at the end of chapter one, she will say that we came back 
empty. And the emptiness isn't just a lack of stuff. The idea of emptiness is the fact that there is this soul-crushing void in their life called grief. They're experiencing the depths of grief through this whole storyline. They are empty. They are utterly crushed. They are weary. But what have we seen throughout this story? As, as the audience peers into the story of Ruth, we actually have seen that as they have taken risky, courageous steps of faith, God has then been behind the scenes working for the good of his people. He has never stopped working for Ruth and Naomi. Now, some may read a story like this and, and they may say, well, this is all coincidence that Ruth happened to go out and glean and come across Boaz and and it just happened that Boaz would just kind of take an interest in Ruth, that these kind of things are just coincidence. But according to the book, it's not just coincidence, it's providence. It's God's hidden hand at work in their lives. As they are walking by faith, God is meeting them with this providential grace. It's God is orchestrating the circumstances of their lives. Lives. So chapter two, God has provided for them food. Boaz is lavish in his kindness towards them. And through Boaz, it's God's providential hand is moving them to provide Ruth and Naomi with food. It's one of their basic fundamental needs. And so we've seen God has worked on their behalf to give them Food. But now we finished out chapter three. And what we've also seen is that God is not only providing food, but it seems as though he's about to provide family. So Ruth chapter three is this strange but wonderful romantic moment. Right. It's the, 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 the soap opera romance drama kind of stuff is unfolding in Ruth chapter three. It's dicey. It's freighted with all kinds of romantic moments and language. And, and so it seems as though Ruth and Boaz have taken a liking to one another. And it leaves then the audience, the, the audience looking into this romance and saying, oh, man, that they would get together that we would see God's blessing upon their life as Boaz and Ruth, that they might get together in marriage. And so chapter three then closes out and it closes out because there's, there's a hitch in this romance. There's actually some other guy who actually has the right to step in and be the redeemer. So we are stuck in this moment of like, romantic anticipation, desiring to see God's hand at work once again to bring about not only food, but also family to Ruth and Naomi. So let's jump into chapter four, and we're just going to work through this text and then take a few lessons from it. The chapter four begins, it, it opens where Boaz is consumed with this zeal. And you ever see a guy who's really going after his girl, right? This, this is Boaz. He, he is seeking after her. He is going after her. He's going to bring some sort of finale to the, the, the issue of having no family. 
And, and, and so Boaz is consumed with the, this zeal. He's not wasted any time. Verse 1, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, which is a strange, it's a strange saying. Why is he going to the city gates? Well, the city gates were more or less the local courthouse. Instead of going, for instance, to family court down at, you know, Arch and 15th or wherever it is down there in Center City, Boaz goes to the city gates. That's where he goes to court. And so he is going to the city gates. And verse 1, he sits down and there's the word. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now remember from last week, we're left on the edge of our seats waiting to see if it's Boaz or this other redeemer who are going to actually help out Ruth and Naomi. And remember the term for redeemer referred to a relative who could buy back Naomi's field and, and in order to take care of Naomi. And, and then, since Ruth was her widowed daughter-in-law, there was also obligation on the redeemer's part to marry Ruth and keep alive the name of her deceased husband. So this was all a part of Old Testament law, and this was all then the responsibility of the Redeemer. So after this romantic scene in chapter 3, like any good ro romance story, there we are, we're, we're left to see who will redeem this situation. Who's going to step in and carry off Ruth as his bride? Who is going to be, if you will, the knight in shining armor? Well, it just so happens that as Boaz goes to the courthouse, the city gates, this other potential redeemer happens to walk by. You have to slow down and say, okay, is this coincidence? I don't think so. Again and again, th these are the things that are happening through this story. It seems like coincidence, but the very same word, behold, is the same attention-grabbing word that's used in chapter 2, verse 4, when it talks about, behold, Boaz has come to Bethlehem because he, he sees this woman in his field then that he needs to get to know. Is this all coincidence throughout the story? It's like, no way. This is providence. This is God orchestrating all these moments and moving the storyline in such a way so as to bless his people. God is at work in these moments. Boaz goes to the courthouse and the Redeemer walks by. This is a perfect situation. It's God at work on behalf of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz then says, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, turn aside, friend, and sit here. Now, this is a Hebrew play on words. In the Hebrew, it's like saying, hey, Mr. Nobody, come on over here and have a seat. It's intentional to keep this man nameless, not only to protect his integrity from what he's about to do, but also then to demonstrate that this guy is just unworthy of having a name. And that, in that culture, in that context, your name gave meaning to who you are. It was your reputation. And in this moment, the idea of having no name, Mr. Nobody, is actually to say, this man is not worthy of having a reputation. He's not worthy of carrying a name. He's Mr. Nobody. 
So in verses 2 through 4, Boaz gathers then, we see him gather the elders and then explain the business at hand. He's explaining what he's attempting to get done uh, for Naomi and for Ruth. And so he states, verse 2, look at it in your Bible. He says, he says to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, and here's his proposition, buy it in the presence of those sitting here. Buy it before the court, in other words, and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will not redeem it, if you will not redeem it, I will redeem it. But if you will not tell me, and I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I alone come after you. And he said then, here, here's the, the Mr. Nobody. He says, I will redeem it. So in this moment, if you're following the course of the ebb and flow of this story, this is where the audience heart sinks. It is just the, it, it is one of these, oh no, you got to be kidding me moments. It was like Boaz was supposed to be the guy, and now this whole thing is turned around, and this other Redeemer guy is stepping in, and now he is the one who's going to buy back the field for Naomi, and he's the guy then that'll eventually get Ruth as his wife, and so now this is a problem. This, this is Kind of your heart falling out in the, in the romance story. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be Ruth and Boaz, not Ruth and this Mr. Nobody. And so it is so interesting then what takes place next. Boaz is one who is quite shrewd in his business. Like, so far, this deal for this Mr. Nobody is like a no-brainer. To receive, the idea is that he would receive Naomi's land, which was, a, which was of significant value in that day. It was agrarian society. So to have land meant money, which meant reputation within the community. And so to receive Naomi's field was a massive, massive uh, valuable thing to take take on and in turn all that he would have to provide is housing for Naomi he would just have to kind of care for her in her later years that and and the land that he would receive could go to his kids one day in other words it could stay in in his name this this would be a no-brainer for this guy this was like he's making money just like that so, of course, he jumps in and says, yep, I'll, I'll do this. This, sound, this sounds great. This sounds great. But notice what Boaz does next, verse 5. He said, and the text is more or less, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. Right? The business deal is, yes, you buy, buy the field and take care of Naomi and everything's good and wonderful. And then Boaz said, oh, by the way, there, there's some, you know, the small letter writing in the contract. The day you buy that field, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz is saying, by the way, 
you also have to take responsibility for Ruth. And he intentionally doesn't refer to Ruth as he has throughout the story. He's called her servant. He's called her daughter. Now he intentionally calls her a Moabite. In other words, he calls her a Moabite knowing that this man better be someone who has the character and the backbone to defend Ruth in this Hebrew culture. All this racial tension raged in this culture. A Moabite woman coming into Bethlehem? Uh Uh-uh. This is not a good thing. And and so Boaz is ensuring, like, if you're going to take on this deal, you better be a man of character. You better be one who defends Ruth from all the racial pushback that she's going to receive as a Moabite living in a Hebrew community. And he must not only defend her, but he must provide her an offspring, which will ultimately mean that this guy doesn't keep the field, but whatever offspring he provides to Ruth would receive the field when he grows of age. So this... This now becomes nothing that this guy is really gaining value from long term. This now is a deal of self-giving. I'm giving of myself in order for the good of Ruth and Naomi. And you watch then Mr. Nobody's whole attitude suddenly change. He was once about the deal. Oh yeah, this looks good. This looks like some quick money. And now to recognize that he would be responsible for Ruth the Moabite and for providing her an offspring and for the future, he wouldn't have that land in his name. Verse 6, he says, well, I better not do this. I better not do this. This might impair my inheritance. The statement is the very reason for why this man remains nameless. Mr. Nobody here in this text is all about himself. He's not willing to defend Ruth. He's not willing to give of himself for her and Naomi. This was utterly shameful at this time. Even even the Old Testament regulations in Deuteronomy 25 actually say that if someone refuses to marry a widowed woman and take responsibility for her, that she could come to the gates, she could come to the courthouse, actually spit in the man's face as a symbol of shame. That was part of the law, which is so strange. But nonetheless, this is a moment of shame. This is a moment where it it, it stands to reason this guy isn't named because he is a man of low reputation. Mr. Nobody will never become a somebody because he's not willing to give of himself. It's almost like out of an attempt to preserve his own legacy, he loses out on a true legacy. And and that that was everything in this culture. It was everything to have a name, to have a lineage, to have a legacy. That's what it was all about. That's why it was all about having something of an offspring that you could kind of carry your name and carry the responsibilities of the land and the reputation of the family. This is what it was all about. And in this moment, Mr. Nobody doesn't become a somebody because he's not willing to give of himself. 
he was so eager to preserve what he had that he actually lost what he could have had, which is a true legacy. And when we see then the final verses of Ruth, we recognize that this man missed out on what would have been the greatest legacy in human history to stand in the very line through which Jesus himself would come. He would not give of himself. Or we could say it this way, he would not work for the good of another. Remember how we began this morning? God never stops working for our good. Here's a guy who won't even begin working for the good of another. And in not working for the good of another, he's actually losing out on the most glorious legacy that he could have had. He sought to preserve his own name, and in preserving his own name, he lost his name. Now, verse 7 then. The narrator has to give some cultural background to us. There's some strange stuff about giving away sandals which is not, not even close to anything that we had experienced in our own culture. Uh, but the idea, if we were to draw a connection to our own culture, is that in, in that time they didn't have contracts, they didn't have uh, ways to like legally ensure that everything is binding. And so their particular way to do that was to actually give someone your sandal, which is a little strange, but nonetheless, it was a way in which, even in a context like this, that the, the one, the Mr. Nobody, could actually take off the sandal and hand away his legal rights to another man. And in that moment, then Boaz receives the, the, the sandal, which meant he then received the right to buy Naomi's field and to take Ruth as his wife. And in that moment, as the sandal is being handled over, the, the language is so quick. It, it goes from, like, as soon as Boaz receives the sandal, as soon as the right of redemption is passed to Boaz, it's immediate. Immediately, he states in verse 9, he says, All right, you are all witnesses this day that I have bought the land from Naomi that belonged to Elimelech and, and to his children, Kilion and Malon. Verse 10, and also Ruth the Moabite, he says, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the deed of his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. It, it is a moment of sudden, like he doesn't waste any time whatsoever. As soon as the opportunity strikes, it is Boaz grabbing a hold of that sandal and declaring from everyone this is what this means. May you be witnesses to this decision. I am buying the field and I am taking Ruth as my wife and I am perpetuating the name of the dead. I'm providing her an heir. Now, this is incredible because where the Mr. Nobody failed, now Boaz steps in and he's one who succeeds in this. He demonstrates a character that is, that is in comparison opposite to that of Mr. Nobody. He is the one who's willing to give of himself for the good of Ruth and Naomi. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, remember that illustration from The Greatest Showman? You know, where Zac Efron and Zendaya are, are holding hands at the ball and, and then suddenly it's the, the parents of Zac Efron who turn 
and they see this happening and they give these eyes of shame to Zac Efron and suddenly Zac Efron's pulling his hand away. Right? It's almost as if this shame is being transferred from the parents to Zac Efron and Zac Efron, like Mr. Nobody, is recoiling. He's not going to stand and defend her. He's not going to stand and say, no, she's my bride. She is mine. No, he doesn't stand to defend her. He, he recoils away. That's what Mr. Nobody has done in this situation. She's a Moabite. And he's recoiling. He's standing. I'm not willing to defend her. I'm not willing to endure that cultural difficulty. Right. But now what is Boaz doing? He's stepping in. And man, he's grabbing a hold of her hand and like amid all the witnesses, throwing the hand up and saying, she is mine. I have bought her. I will defend her. I will cover her. Any shame that this culture tries to throw at her, I will stand in the way. I will be her covering. I will ensure that no shame is brought to her. He, in, in all of that, he is that kind of, you know, knight in shining armor. He is the one who has come to rescue her and defend her and to cover her from any kind of cultural shame that might be cast upon her. He is one who has stepped in and says, I am going to give of myself. I'm going to work for your good at my own expense. But he not only selflessly then gives himself away to defend Ruth and to make her his bride, but then he also then says that uh, he's going to provide a name or a, or a legacy. He's going to continue the line. In other words, Boaz is giving himself to ensure that Elimelech's legacy is continued. In, in, in this way, it, what we see something of of this selfless sacrifice is that, that God places favor on Boaz for making this selfless uh, commitment. He, 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 he see, he's giving himself away in order that Ruth and Naomi, in particular Naomi's family name, is continued. And we'll see this more clearly in the next week, but but God blesses, God incredibly blesses Boaz's desire to see the name of Elimelech continued because, again, we'll, we'll see that it's through this line that Jesus ultimately comes. It's through Boaz's self-sacrifice that incredible blessing is brought through this line, this line of Elimelech. King David will eventually come from this line, and King Jesus will then eventually come from this line. Boaz will have his name forever written in inspired scripture and a name that will stand in the legacy of Christ's coming. Folks, this, when it comes down to it, we could say it this way, that this is the ethic of God's covenant with man. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those who step out in selfless giving of themselves, it provides a platform for God to bring blessing to them. Now, what we finally see then in verse 11 is not only does Boaz kind of grow in favor but all, with God, but also then with man. You, you, if, if you're not catching that, it's the same phrase that's used when Jesus arrives on the scene. He grows in favor with God and man. Boaz grows in favor with God. God providentially works things out for 
his good as Boaz is laying himself down for the good of others. It's an incredible thing that God's accomplishing in those moments. He's bringing blessing to Boaz as Boaz is taking incredible risks. But not only does he receive favor from God, he receives favor from men. It's the crowd in verse 11 that erupts in benediction. They erupt with blessing. Now, this may seem a little strange uh, to us in our context. Uh, I don't know that we quite get the idea of declarative blessing or benedictions. We kind of see that as a religious thing, you know, that you tag on to an end of a Sunday gathering. You do this benediction, and isn't that nice, and we feel religious about ourselves, and we go our merry way. But that's not the idea of declarative blessing or benediction in Scripture. The idea in Scripture, even as God would tell Moses in Numbers 6, he would, he would tell Moses to have the priest speak benediction, blessing over the people because God desired to utilize that blessing through which providentially he would come and rain blessing on, on his people. It's, it's as though God chose the means of declarative blessing to be the vehicle through which he would dispense his blessing. And so what we have here is these people are erupting in blessing. They're proclaiming blessing over Boaz and over Ruth because because these are individuals who are worthy of God's blessing. Like, when it comes to declarative blessing, uh, I think the, the word... The phrase, name it and claim it, probably summarize the abuses of declarative blessing, where it's like, yeah, wouldn't a Ferrari be nice? You know, wouldn't it be, you know, declare blessing? I'm going to have a Ferrari today and God would give it to me. And, and, and even the New Testament, James chapter four would say, hey, you know, you ask for things or maybe you declare things, but you declare it or you ask for it as a way to just pleasure your own self. It's self-motivated. And so that's an abuse of this dynamic. We're not talking about name it and claim it when we're, when we're discussing declarative blessing. The idea here is that Boaz and Ruth have already demonstrated godly character. Their hearts are already in line with God's purposes. And so it's only right for the people to stand back and say, oh, may God bless them even more because in their character they can steward the blessing." Sometimes, I'm, gonna say, I'm just going to say it. Sometimes we don't receive the blessing because God knows that we don't have the character to steward it. Blessing would crush us otherwise. It would lead us to apathy. It would lead us to selfishness. We would become more absorbed in ourselves because it's, it's character the limitations of our stewardship are determined by our character. And so if we, if we can't steward the gift, it will ultimately crush us. It will make us just so self-absorbed. It will make us just so consumeristic. It will make us materialistic. It will make us everything that God doesn't intend for us if we don't have the character to steward the blessings that God gives us. And so in this moment, ah, it is so right. Boaz, Ruth, They have demonstrated this godly character. Remember, the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. And we've seen that Ruth is that Proverbs 31 woman. 
She's demonstrated godly character at every turn in this book where there may have been sexual temptation. that They did, they did not fall into that temptation, but they walked through it in holiness with godly character when it came to the gleaning and even when it came to the, the redemption part of all of this. They're saying, like, we're going to put God first in everything we do. We're going to step out where God provides provision and, and we're going to step out and, and trust God with the outcome of these things. Again and again, their godly character paves the way. Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman, and Boaz is more or less the young man who seems to be taught by his father throughout the, the book of Proverbs. He's a man of character. He's a man who says, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. And what we have then is a couple that, that is deserving of God's blessing. Like the people should be saying, oh God, bless them, bless them, bless them, because they have the character to ultimately steward the blessings that you will bring. It's not going to crush them. It's going to be good for them, and it's going to be good for us. So God bless them. They are a people who have the character to steward your blessings. Do we have the character to steward God's blessings? What's the nature of the, these blessings that these people proclaim? Well, three, three different categories. Verse 11, it says, the, the, the crowd shouts out, May the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. The point being, all 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 children that were born to Rachel and to Leah. In other words, it was Rachel and Leah who played a massive role in the progress of redemptive history. Redemptive history was pushed forward in incredible ways through these women. God used them in significant ways to see more or less the nation of Israel established. And so what they are saying is, as you work through Rachel and Leah to advance this redemptive history according to your purposes, do it even more so with Ruth. Utilize Ruth to see her name blessed and her legacy blessed. May it be that her name pushes forward redemptive history in all the right and wonderful ways. In other words, what they're saying is God bless her name, bless her lineage, bless her legacy, push forward your purposes through this woman, bless her. So they are blessing her name. Secondly then, they bless her reputation. It says, oh, that she would act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ruth is that Proverbs 31 woman, and the crowd realizes it, and what they are more or less saying is saying, may your character be that which pulls down the full blessing of God upon us as a people. Bethlehem and Ephrata are different names of the same place. Right? It's that city, Bethlehem. Except the expression makes, it, it should make us stand back and say, okay, what does Ephrathah mean and what, is, what does Bethlehem mean? Ephrathah means fullness or fruitfulness. And Bethlehem means house of bread. So in other words, what they're saying is may, may your reputation, may your worthiness, your character be known 
in Ephrata, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem. The idea is may your character pull down the fullness of God's blessings. May the house of bread be full and overflowing because you reside here, because your reputation and your character can steward something of the blessings of God. It attracts the favor of God. These people are recognizing Ruth's character and saying, oh God, bless her reputation so that in some way we receive the influence of those blessings. They are blessing her reputation. May God bless this place with fullness through you, Ruth. And then finally, they bless her influence. Verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, uh, Tamar and Judah is another crazy situation in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 39. The interesting thing is that similar to Ruth, Tamar was a widowed Gentile daughter-in-law. But Tamar sinfully got pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. Um, and the son was then named Perez. Perez means breakthrough, right? And Boaz's family then was a part of the line of Perez. So the crowd knows all these details. And the crowd knows the history and the crowd knows the lineage. And so they are declaring that there would be a breakthrough to see the Gentile nations brought under the blessing of Yahweh through Ruth. Just like Tamar was a Gentile, brought into the purposes of God, just like Ruth is a Gentile, and she's brought into the purposes of, of God in the same way. They're saying, oh, may that happen all the more because that's what God's original promise was in the first place, that, that the nations of the world would be blessed through the nation of Israel. So they're saying, oh, may there be breakthrough. May God now reach out to the nations and bring something of blessing to them. The crowd is blessing Ruth's name. They're blessing her reputation, and her ble they're blessing her influence. Th this, is, this is just saturated with, with theology uh, and just depths and complex uh, themes that run through Scripture. It is full. It is not just this small, hey, easygoing blessing kind of a thing. It's not cliche whatsoever. It is freighted, full of meaning. So, Boaz, this redeemer, this godly character, as we've seen from the story, doesn't stop working until he gets his bride. And when he has her, blessing is showered upon her. Blessing is showered upon her. So what's the takeaway for, for us? You get through that storyline and it's like, okay, that, that was nice for them and there are probably practical applications that we could make throughout that whole section. And, and yet, what is, what is the main thing that we're supposed to walk away with when it comes to this particular text? Well, as Boaz, the Redeemer, never stopped working for Ruth and blessing was then showered upon them, so our Redeemer 
never stops working for us. And through him, we are showered with blessing. Who is our redeemer? Christ, right? Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz, the redeemer, the one who would redeem this foreigner, this Moabite Ruth, who would go after her, who would work for her good at his own expense, and then in that marriage be showered with blessings. So it's Jesus who never stops working for our good. He leaves the 99 to go seek after the one that is lost. He comes after us. He is the one who, even as the Gospels say, he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And why is he so set on Jerusalem? Because he's so set on giving himself, just like Boaz does, so as to secure us to himself through the death of his cross. This is the Redeemer. This is Jesus. This is the figure that Boaz ultimately points us to. It's all about Jesus. Our Redeemer never stops working for our good. And through the Redeemer, we are showered with blessing. This is why the New Testament picks up on the language of the church being Christ's bride. We didn't belong. As Ephesians will say, we weren't even of kind of the, the Hebrew line and the promises and the covenants that God made with his people. But now because of Jesus, there's Perez, there's breakthrough. The walls have now been pushed down. And now it is the fact that the blessing of Christ has gone to the nations and God is now calling through Christ a bride to himself made up of Jew and Gentile alike. We all now can come into the community of faith. We can all know something of the blessing of the Redeemer. We can all know something of him as our bridegroom. He is the one who, just like Boaz, stands to defend us, not only to redeem us. He's the one who steps in and covers our shame. Do you know shame? We know shame. Goodness, our lives are marked out with shame. We, we feel even that the, the, the accusations of the evil one, utilizing that shame again and again, bringing that stuff up so that in some way we don't rest in what Jesus has ultimately redeemed for us. But it's this kind of story, it's these kind of truths that we are supposed to find something of a true security. Jesus stands to defend you. He stands to wipe your shame away. He stands to defend you against the accusations of the enemy. He stands as the one who would call you his own bride. This is the Redeemer who never stops working for our good. And through him, then we are showered with blessing. What kind of blessings do we see, receive with Jesus? Well, just a few that kind of align with this particular text. In Jesus, Jesus gives us a true name. He gives us a true name. In, in Isaiah 56, it says this. Th this, is, this is like prophecy of what Christ would ultimately accomplish for us. And, and listen to the language very carefully. It, it aligns with Ruth and it aligns then with the new covenant that we have in Jesus. Isaiah 56, verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner, let not the Moabite, let not the one who doesn't belong to the house of Israel, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, 
the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Isn't that what Ruth probably felt? Like I'm going into Bethlehem, I've trusted in Yahweh, but will those people receive me? <laughs> Isaiah is saying, let it never come to our lips that the Lord will separate me from his people. God states this, I will give in my house, in my family, within my walls, I will give a monument, and listen to this, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. It's in Jesus that we receive, and I don't even know what a name better than sons and daughters is, but it, that's, he, he takes it to its greatest end. This is amazing that in Jesus, we are blessed with a name that can never be cut off. Have you ever wondered, man, am I really a believer? I'm not sure. I, I stand in this place of just a constant doubt. And, you know, my life has been a mess and struggles and doubts. And uh, I don't know if I really belong. Well, the fact is, is we don't trust in our own abilities. We trust in this Redeemer, this Redeemer who gives us a name, not by the work that we've done, not by making ourselves approved before him, but it's the work that he's done to secure us to himself. It's about what he's done upon that cross that provides us a name that shall never be cut off, a name better than sons and daughters. In Jesus, this is what we get. We get a better name, right? We have a legacy, if you will, in him. But secondly, he doesn't only give us a name, but secondly, he gives us his reputation. You ever have a bad reputation in front of others, right? You've made your mistakes, and now people kind of look down their nose at you. It's like, oh my, you know, oh my goodness, you're always living in this world of like, I want to just cover myself and walk away kind of stuff. Well, when it comes to what Jesus does for us, he gives us a new reputation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 states this. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus Christ to be sin. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus, the perfect Man, the perfect reputation, right? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? Why would Jesus be made to be sin? He was perfect, perfect reputation, perfect like, you know, score. All the stars on the, you know, in the teacher's room, all the stars were all lined up. He'd gained all the approval. He'd done everything that's necessary, and yet he takes on himself. Sin, he was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. Jesus steps in, he takes on our sin, and, and it's not just though we, we, we have our slate clean. That's not gospel. The gospel just doesn't wipe our slate clean. It's that Jesus now takes his own slate of perfection and says, ah, this is now how you are accounted. This is your reputation. You stand in my perfect righteousness. You stand in my perfect obedience, not in your own. This is the reputation that he gives us. He gives us a standing with the Father of perfect approval. 
As Christians, we oftentimes waver on that. We doubt. We, we, we play this religious game of still trying to achieve favor and, 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 and kind of draw God's favor upon us so that he would receive us. But the fact of the matter, we are not received by what we do. We are received by what Christ has done, and he gives us that perfect reputation, that perfect standing, that perfect righteousness. Third, he gives us a name, he gives us a reputation, but third, he becomes our breakthrough. He becomes our Perez. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were foreigners, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's our breakthrough. Jesus tore down the walls that separated us from his promises. He is the Perez. He is our breakthrough in that sense. And he came, he preached peace to you who were far off, you who were foreigners, and peace to those who were near, those who were Jewish. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, you are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God. Jesus has become our Perez. He has become our breakthrough. He is the one that ushers us into his family. So he gives us a new name. He gives us a new reputation. And he becomes for us our breakthrough. He is the one who brings us into his very home, his family. Our Redeemer Jesus Christ, once again, never stops working for our good. He never stops working for our good and therein ensuring that every blessing and every promise is only Yes and amen. He will not fail. He will not fail his bride. But he will faithfully redeem her and he will faithfully bring her home. Let's pray.